Um, oftentimes when I'm talking about uh, either just um, minorities in France or people who are both people of color and queer in France, is that I often have to deal with uh, miserabilism. And miserabilism is a kind of series of tropes that emphasize failure, that emphasize uh, social immobility, not being able to improve on one's condition, uh, a horizon, social horizons that don't go on beyond uh, the current generation because, for instance, uh, minorities or immigrants cannot uh, find partners on the love or marriage market. Uh, just a lot of messages that, once taken all together, reinforce failure. Um, and what I found is that there's a lot of ink spilled in journalism uh, lamenting kind of the conditions of, uh, for instance, gay people in the banlieue. But there's not much interest, sorry, there's not much interest in forms of resistance, whether it's um, uh, people who are negotiating their family life with their uh, sort of sexually liberated life in the city center, or uh, women who are, um, you know, educating themselves while wearing the veil uh, and navigating all kinds of um, code switching. And for me, that sort of lack of interest in resistance and re resiliency shows that the interest in these communities, in helping these communities, is not really about help. It's about stigmatizing them as different. Um, so one thing that um, I also find very challenging is that in my own scholarship and teaching, I give a critique of homonormativity. And it's kind of difficult sometimes because when you describe the ways in which gay culture writ large can be uniform or even repressive of different ways of being gay or contain a kind of racism or white supremacy, uh, the answer to that is sort of an accusation of internalized uh, homophobia, that one is not properly gay, that one uh, is sort of throwing to the trash the sort of gains that the gay community has made, especially with gay rights and the uh, fight against AIDS. And it's very hard to sort of keep one's queer and gay credentials um, sort of strong while at the same time giving a critique of the gay community and not being seen as a kind of gay traitor, basically. Um, did I go over my time? No, I have two minutes. Okay. So I also think one challenging thing is my, in my teaching is talking about diaspora. So I think that there are certain acts and gender expressions that occur in diaspora that signify very differently compared to the same acts and expressions were they to occur in North Africa, for instance. So what do I mean by that? I think the decision, for instance, to don the veil in a French public school system when you're a minority is very different from wearing the veil sort of on the streets of Cairo. In one situation, it sort of comforts the attitudes of a majority. In the other, it can be seen as a sign of cultural or even political resistance and carries greater risks, different risks that can be seen as great, right? Um, so I'll just end with a kind of story about another challenge that I find in my uh, own personal activism, which I'm gonna call uh, how to not pinkwash oneself. Okay, so you'll see what I mean when I tell you the story. So, um, pinkwashing, if you don't know what it means, it refers to sort of the use or the mobilization of a progressive LGBT agenda to distract from human rights violations or other abuses. Um, so, 
the story I want to tell occurred uh, about five years ago, and I wanted to visit Palestine and Israel uh, with some friends, and I landed in Tel Aviv, and of course I was subject to, uh, I don't know why, uh, that's a sort of like a fake innocence that I'm professing right now, but a, a four-hour interview where I was asked the same questions over and over by many different people. Uh, a friend was waiting for me and had to go to work, so I had to find a way to get out of the situation, and up until that point, I had never said anything about my sexual orientation, and I decided at the very end, because I needed a way out, what I thought would be a way out, I decided to out myself and say that, yes, I'm gay and I came for gay pride. Um, and the person who was interviewing me looked at me with a kind of exhaustion and relief and said, you should have said that in the beginning. And he let me go. <coughs> and I felt, I felt bad about this because I saw all the other people who were in the same waiting room who were still being held up uh, while I could go walk free. And I sort of had a feeling that I don't often have, which is one of gay privilege, right, if we're going to call it what it is. Um, so, and this was the dilemma, to sort of compromise oneself, to, to use my homosexuality to codify myself as a non-threat that I found very uncomfortable but also something worth writing about. And I'm kind of interested in the future forms of, that my scholarship might take in this idea of why the queer person or the gay person can never, both, can never be a terrorist. And that is sort of, you might say, oh, why would anyone complain about not being taken for a, a terrorist? But it represses or it, it hides sort of the, 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 the analogy or the, um, the collapse of gayness with non-threat or non-formidable force, and that's actually quite homophobic. So that's something I'm interested in. Um, so I'll stop there because I went over time and pass over the mic to someone else. Brilliant, thanks. Great, thank you very much, Mohammed. So our next speaker is um, Jean Bai, who is an associate professor of sociology and gender studies at Sabanji University. Um, Jenk received BA in Sociology and PA, PhD in Sociology from the University of Southern California in 2012. His areas of research and teaching include the sociology of gender and sexualities, globalization and neoliberalism, the sociology of work, mobilities in the city, and contemporary Istanbul and Turkey. So, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm not an activist either, <laughs> so you're not alone. Uh, I was thinking of what I present here in this panel, in addition to the papers that we presented before in the previous sessions. I thought that maybe it will give an idea of how diverse queer lives, actually from my experience of research of queer lives in Istanbul in the last 10 years or so. Is it closed? Oh, should I be closer? Better? I made this research on uh, male prostitution, male sex workers, and uh, their gay clientele in Istanbul and published this book. Then I made another research which with a colleague on the aging gay male body and how come anthropos is actually a heterosexual term, obviously. Then I made another research with another colleague, uh, as I presented here, uh, of feminist and queer young activist students in different cities of Turkey. Then I'm currently doing another research on homonormativity and upper class gay men's politics of respect and privilege. 
And also, I am completing another study on gendered and sexualized aspects of gentrification that's taking place in Istanbul. So these kind of like researches that I did uh, make me think that, oh, this is kind of a diversity that we don't necessarily deal with when we talk about gender, sexuality, and activism and politics in the global south, because even, even my experience denies this. So we're just like, uh, with another colleague, I'm gonna like uh, organize this workshop uh, of queer decades of Turkey in May, which is another topic. But in, in this framework, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the activist culture, since this is an activism uh, meeting in essence. Uh, the new activist culture that we are encountering is right now is quite different from the previous generations of activists that we used to know. Uh, there are elements that uh, I, I'm afraid I can't summarize in a minute, but especially the usage of social media in different and contested contexts, uh, new communication skills that they're supposed to have, and new <coughs> administrative processes. That, uh, and some skills, obviously, that they're bringing into the field of activism are worthy to talk about and interrogate. And if there are differences from feminist versus queer activism or there are some similarities between <coughs> them. In the Turkish experience, uh, being a leftist, a socialist, a communist was a prerequisite for being an activist in the past. Uh, when I was hanging out with uh, queer activists in Turkey 20 years ago, when I was a college student, everyone, everyone was a Marxist. <laughs> you couldn't think of any other way. Then it came, uh, without naming it, the wave of intersectionality, that we need to think <coughs> struggles together, we need to fight in them together. And this uh, created a result specific to the Turkish context of every social struggle for social justice is engaged with the Kurdish movement. But then it also engendered another reaction that some people are kind of distant from the Kurdish movement and therefore they felt themselves uh, discriminated against or marginalized in social movements. And today, of course, we can also talk about another kind of segment of activism that's engaged with NGOs, NGOization, uh, EU projects and funds, fundraising projects, which is totally anti-socialist, anti-communist, or anti-leftist in that sense. However, another aspect that I think I need to address here is the rise of authoritarianism and populism in Turkey, as I was talking about in my paper in the previous session, in the last kind of uh, 10 years, if, if you like, and the responses that sexual activists and to a certain extent gender activists are producing against this wave. One kind of branch that I can name is the increasing globalization uh, of activism, articulation to the transnational institutions and NGOs and discourses and values and world making, a queer activist world making that's taking place. And the other response that I could able to observe is going for more local and indigenous elements of political consciousness and cultural expressions and creating a space and giving a voice to kind of their roots. This is obvious in, uh, evident in arts and other kind of fields that we can understand, but it is also uh, 
clear for my eyes in the field of activism too. Thank you. Thank you very much. Excellent. So our next speaker is Silvia Quattrini, uh, who has been a member of the organizing team of Chuftuhana, the International Art Festival of Tunis, since 2016. Sylvia is also the Middle East and North Africa Programs Coordinator for Minority Rights Group International and a professional translator. She holds a master's degree in theory and practice of translation from SOAS and a master's degree in Arabic and Middle Eastern studies from La Sapienza, Rome. She's currently pursuing an LLM in human rights law. Thank you. Okay, I'll start by doing my disclaimer. Um, <laughs> I'm not uh, a foreground uh, voice uh, from the region nor from its diaspora. I'm actually uh, someone who moved to Tunisia in 2014, uh, working in the human rights field. And I lived there until 2017. And, you know, when I was there, I heard about this uh, international feminist festival called Shoftohunna. And I, and I decided to join as a volunteer first. And then I became a member of the organizing committee. But there's actually, you know, an organization that it's made of approximately 20 Tunisian women that is behind uh, this initiative and uh, my colleague Bushra who is the president uh, couldn't make it last moment so I, I, I came here to, to replace her but I, I don't want to you know trick you into believing that I have you know an experience that it's not mine so I'll try to give uh, a perspective from someone who is an outsider but has lived uh, there and worked there for a while um, now, when, when we talk about the, the issue of sexuality in Tunisia, I think uh, the main challenge and the main issue is around uh, non-normativity, uh, which means, you know, everything that goes uh, beyond the norm, what it's supposed to be the norm. So apart from the LGBT issues, there's, uh, like, problems around, for example, women uh, wanted to affirm their own sexuality and wanted to, you know, live by themselves without being married or deciding not to have children and, and and all these kind of issues, or even like homo, like uh, sorry, heterosexual couples who wants to live together without necessarily uh, getting married. Uh, now, when it comes to to LGBT individuals, beyond uh, also the, the issue of social, you know, stigma, there is also uh, an issue of criminalization because uh, homosexuality, both male and female, is criminalized with up to three years of jail by an article of the, the penal code that was introduced during French colonization and, and which is still uh, valid. Um, and there is also uh, other articles in the penal code that are used against, uh, for example, transgender and transsexual individuals, such as uh, outrage to public morals or prostitutions and, and these kind, of, uh, kind of grounds. Um, now, in, uh, in terms of LGBT activism in Tunisia, there are uh, five organizations currently working on this issue. Uh, Shuf is one of them. Um, and Shuf is actually the only one that is combining both the feminist struggle and the LGBT one. So the idea behind this movement is to um, create a feminist movement from within the LGBTQI uh, movement and to kind of uh, give space to... Um, you know, to empower women with non-normative sexualities and, and identities. Um, now, how does SHUF deal with the, the challenges on the ground? They, they do a lot of uh, activities in, um, in terms of artivism. So artivism is the main tool that has been used uh, so far. 
And I actually wanted to tell you about the specific example of this festival, Shoftuhuna, because I don't have a lot of time. Uh, and I actually want to show you uh, a few pictures and, uh, and videos while I speak, because I think it's good to kind of visualize things. Um, now, Shoftuhuna was born as a as an initiative on the International Day Against Homophobia and Transphobia. Uh, and the idea was to provide a platform to uh, women from the LBT community to give them a platform to express themselves through arts. Because, you know, as every uh, domain, uh, also art is dominated by men. So the idea is, was, was to kind of um, give them this platform. Then, actually, they started receiving so many applications. It was supposed to be a national initiative, but they started receiving applications from all over the world. And from this one day, very local and you know, kind of niche initiative, it then uh, became on a two days initiative, then three days. So each year we actually added a day to the festival and this year uh, we're going to be um, on, on five days. And you're welcome to, to attend. It's going to happen in September, so keep an eye on that. And, uh, you know, the... Um, the idea behind the festival is that we don't suggest like an, an understanding of feminism, but each form of feminism is welcome and it's more like to put people in a debate and, uh, and to really claim more power and more space for women as artists, as organizers, as producers, and, you know, and also as, a, as an audience. Um, the festival is multidisciplinary. Uh, can you, is there any chance you can turn this on? Ooh, it's there. Yes. Great. Uh, so these are like a few pictures from the, the various editions. It's like we have theater performances, uh, music performances. Um, we have exhibitions of, uh, you know, pictures and um, <coughs> all type of visual arts. We have a stand where we sell products that are made by local, uh, like, women artists. We did workshops with, with children also on... Uh, the concept, the constructing the, the, the concept of gender starting from, from an early age, uh, like workshop on, you know, body expressions. And this, we also organized like panels discussion around the issue of, of sexualities. This one in particular was a panel around feminisms from, from the global south. Uh, we also have a female tattoo artist. So it's really like we try to approach the issue from so many different uh, points of view. Uh, this is the team. As I told you, there is approximately uh, 15, 20 people working on this. Um, now, like uh, one issue that I want to talk about is the is that the festival has really tried to address is the issue of, of public space. Uh, now, everywhere in the world, uh, and I mean in Tunisia in particular, because we were talking about this, this the public space is really male dominated. So if you walk down the street, uh, you will see most like coffee houses is a space for men and women feel like very uncomfortable uh, going in these places. And at the beginning, this festival uh, used to take place in a, in a town that is just outside of, you know, Tunis, that it's kind of known for being privileged and, and a bit, you know, yeah, like a privileged area. And then from uh, the third edition, we actually moved to this place, which is in the, the, national, the Tunisian National Theatre. So it's in the heart of the Medina in downtown Tunis, which is known for being like a very popular uh, space. And, uh, you know, when, when we were 
we were there, the, the, the theater is closed, so this part is actually inside the theater. But the doors of the theater, they open up to a square where you have a coffee house, which is completely like male dominated. And you know, when we're there, you need to go to the coffee house, you buy coffee, you need water, you need food, whatever things. And we re really, really saw the geography of the place that was completely changing because from being a place that was completely male dominated, we bring, you know, hundreds of female artists and audience from all over the world. And, and the space there was, was changing. And, and at the beginning was a bit of a, a bit of a shock because you would have, you know, women from so many different backgrounds, but also people from the queer community who would normally perceive the street as a as an unsafe place. You know, it's a place that is a threat for them. But put the, putting these bodies in a collective manner in this place would make them feel kind of this sense of taking claiming the space and and feeling safe like as a collectivity um and so you know after the 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 edition where we had uh, we were in this theater when we were leaving actually the guys that were working at the cafe they asked us then when are you ladies coming back because they uh, apparently appreciated this experience and and then the last year we decided not only to redo the experience in this in this theater but also to bring then the performances uh, outside and and to finish you know the the, the festival with some street um performance thank you and our last speaker is uh, Rula Segair is a queer feminist writer novelist and translator she's the managing editor of Call and a co-founder of Intersectional Knowledge Publishers uh, she's a member of a feminist cooperative based in Beirut. She's a passionate about gender performativity, political and moral economies of community organizing, critical, critical theory, and feminist epistemology and practice. Thank you. And she's a nervous speaker, so <laughs> bear with me. <laughs> okay. So, like, not, yeah. Um, Two years ago, like Beirut Pride happened, and like uh, the media were talking about how like there is progress being made in the Middle East, and how finally like LGBT people and queer people are speaking up, and this is something that is being celebrated for the first time in the entire region, not the first time, not in the entire region. Uh, queer people, feminists, a lot of people of non-normative sexualities and gender uh, performances have been organizing historically. And they have been organizing in ways that do not cater to that specific gaze. Actually, uh, Beirut Pride was a setback to this movement. Why? Because it's registered as a trademark. Because it feeds into the consumerist culture of producing queer bodies um, in a way that is uh, legible or in a way that is consumable to uh, Western donors, to the global north, to structures that we rely on in order to access resources because the distribution of resources is uh, <laughs> unequal everywhere. So when I think of the challenges that we face in uh, Lebanon when it comes to queer organizing, I think of two things. I think of the LGBT framework uh, that makes our causes like more docile and very one-dimensional, that does not link it up to any aspects of the struggles that we live in or that we go through, uh, aside of sexuality, <coughs> aside gender, that does not treat our bodies, our bodies that are recipient of indivisible types of oppression and that are systemic and that are not individual 
um, and I think of another framework as well, which is the human rights framework and how it fails us. If we think of the human rights framework, we also need to think about the historical context in which this language has emerged and what it leaves uh, untouched. Uh, if we think of our rights, like there are a gazillion like uh, pages written about what human rights are and like they're numbered and uh, we go through them and we promote them, but like they leave a lot of people uh, aside because they speak a language of the state and the state does not recognize people who are disposable to it. Uh, and it speaks when it comes to gender and sexuality, a language that is gendered and it causes harm in certain instances, like for example, if I think of uh, um, the right to choose a spouse or the right to, to choose a partner, like this uh, right, a human right, is written in a gendered language that pretends or like gives the underlying assumption that women in certain cultures, like uh, most notably in the global south, are not able to choose their partner because our cultures are backwards. But when we take examples of our uh, countries, uh, let's take Palestine, like women are not able to choose their spouses, not because women can't, uh, men as well are not able to choose their spouses in very heteronormative settings because there is uh, occupation happening and people from areas A, B and C cannot marry. So the issue is not necessarily gendered even when it pertains to sex, even when it pertains to marriage, even when it pertains to very heteronormative uh, and recognized institutions that are promoted by the state. So we need a framework that is larger than this in order to be able to uh, call things w what they are. And this framework is not provided to us neither by the human rights, uh, neither by the LGBT way of understanding things, because to go back to the pride that has happened uh, in, in Lebanon, what it did in the opening speech is that the founder has thanked the police for protecting the respectable gay citizen. And in a time of the so-called refugee crisis, I, I don't have the words, this is very appalling, like where a lot of funds come to NGOs and come to the civil society through the so-called refugee crisis, whereby there is the creation of the new subaltern of, or of internal, um, of internal colonized subjects. So like if we think within the premise of Lebanon, like there isn't necessarily a need for new colonization in the very material form to exist, but like we are producing new colonized subjects in the way uh, we access those resources and in the way we gatekeep and the way uh, we're able to provide more for like people who have uh, more visibility already for people who are privileged. Because uh, when we think of this framework, it values visibility. It does not value the ambiguity of what queerness could be. And this is problematic for two things. First of all, people in the region, people in Lebanon might not identify along those identitarian lines. They might identify along practices and performances more so than strictly uh, stagnant uh, and defined identity, so that's one, like a cultural type of uh, miscue. Uh, and two, because already like when people do identify with these frameworks and they're able to emerge as LGB or T, uh, that also um, talks of some certain uh, level of privilege that says they can afford it. They can afford to emerge as such and to celebrate uh, their queerness publicly. So um, 
This is representative of homo-nationalism, which both of you have spoken about. And homo-nationalism, the way it functions within our countries and also in the diaspora, uh, it's twofold. So within Lebanon, when uh, I gatekeep in resources when it comes to like Syrian refugees, say, and like Iraqi refugees, and I'm creating this, uh, this new colonial subject, and I'm thanking the police and thanking the state for protecting the national respectable gay, I'm also being uh, complicit in the making of queer bodies that are non national non-citizen, I'm making them disposable, but they're also disposable in the diaspora and in countries of the global north where they seek uh, refuge, where they seek uh, migration, and then the homo-nationalist discourse re-emerges again, but this time led by uh, people from the global north, and that say we, we judge people's um, validity and the validity of their experiences uh, by how well they uh, understand or like how receptive they are to uh, LGBT frameworks, etc. So like you would find a lot of discourse in Europe about like, but what happens when migrants come from all of these countries? Uh, aren't they going to be hostile to our homo-nationalism? Aren't they going to be hostile, like rape our women and like uh, talk in a derogatory way to our gays? Like, so that's being produced on both sides and that's uh, reflective of a larger system of oppression that, that is happening. So instead of these two frameworks, what I'm advocating for in this session is adopting something different that does not call for rights because we take our rights from the government, but why do we need policymakers or like why do we need people in authority positions to grant us something that is already ours? Like we ought to speak of justice because justice is already there and justice is something that is not imputable to uh, nations that already create binaries, whether be it uh, homosexual, heterosexual, be it national citizen or uh, migrant refugee, uh, we ought to like reclaim this queerness that we have and like reclaim it in different terminology and with a different framework, because what queerness is to compulsory heterosexuality and what queerness is to heteronormativity is the same thing that transnational feminism is to uh, as well like homo-nationalism homo or transnational feminism uh, is to the divisibility of struggles or to the nation state as well. Um, so if we see, and this is a problem of solidarity, because sometimes we think when we work in a transnational uh, context, how are we going to be able to lift each other's oppression? And this is because we see we fail to see through the barriers of the nation state and through those borders. But like if we uh, think of how us as individuals reproduce contexts and not only reproduce populations. So our individual body is the pivotal thing between an individual and between the nation state or between the body of the species or the body of the government or whatever type of body that we're recreating consciously and unconsciously and what type of threat our queerness poses to this reproduction, both material and also metaphorical. This is when we can lift each other up because we can see how like somebody else's oppression, like when it's lifted, it lifts my own. So, yeah, that's it. Great, thank you. Shall we invite our participants to, if they have questions to each other in terms of what they've been hearing from each other, as a sort of speaking off point? I do have one. All right. <laughs> so I, I tried to approach you during the coffee break, but like I'll do this publicly. <laughs>
Um, so when you were talking about your research, it was very reminiscent of uh, ideas of gentrification. And uh, like I started asking this question, I was still trying to formulate it uh, in my head. So within like national borders, say in France, uh, like the gay subject is being gentrified. So like they cannot exist in the banlieue. If like they exist there, they're, then they're not gay enough or they're not queer enough. They have to be in certain like more privileged or uh, bourgeois settings for them to be a respectable gay. But also like on an international level, um, you're, you're talking about children of immigrants. So like this is the second generation of immigrants in France. But like right now with the influx of so-called refugees and like with the migration happening and the rights to movement and with everything that's collapsing in our regions and how they are being recruited, um, like I, I guess what are your reflections on the new wave of migrants coming to France when it comes to the discourse on homonationalism and on judging them and like their value according to their ethos or ethics on this topic vis-a-vis uh, -vis what is happening to the gentrified bodies of the queer of the banlieue? Tough question. <laughs> <laughs> you said you're a nervous speaker. <laughs> I did Actually, I was going to pass the baton and ask you about gentrification, but I'll answer first and maybe okay. um, we'll move down that way. Okay, so I'm going to talk about gaytrification and the impact of refugees on all these questions. Um, so I think the US narrative might be a little misleading for the French context. Can everyone hear? No. I'm sorry. OK. So I said that I was going to answer in two parts. Is this on? It is on. No. OK. Um, so I was going to answer in two parts. The first, I would talk about gayness and gentrification. Uh, wait, wait, wait. I think I'll it doesn't work. Yeah. Oh, it doesn't work? Yeah, just this. OK. Sorry to the people in front. I've said this three times already. <laughs> but um, I said I was going to divide my remarks into uh, talk about um, the relationship between homosexuality and gentrification, and then talk about the impact of uh, refugees on questions of sexual citizenship, sexual nationalism, and so on. Um, so I think the US context, uh, there's a certain narrative about how gay, uh, gentrification works, where sort of um, uh, gay people, not so much lesbians, but gay men, are seen as kind of the um, forerunners of a coming gentrification symptomatic of sort of the telltale signs before the Whole Foods comes and the coffee shops come, right? Uh, kind of doing the terrain, like f fielding the space. Um, and that, you know, you can read about that in uh, Jose Esteban Munoz's work. Um, and what's interesting to me is sort of how the presence of white gay people and gay people of color is different in relationship to gentrification. And there's also a gentrification, a gaytrification, that happens where um, areas populated by gay people of color get gentrified too. And gay people are not always just the agents of gentrification. It has also to do with questions of class and race. Um, and I think in France, it's, what's, it's a little bit different. And I can't really do a cut and paste because Yes, the, the Marais has 
become totally gentrified. And one, you know, I had a really hard time understanding why, for instance, it was hard to take female friends to gay clubs in the city center in Paris. And I was very upset about that. Like, I went with my cousin. My cousin couldn't come in. We couldn't have a good time. We all went home disappointed. And, uh, but then I realized that there's a long history of French clubs sort of losing their space to, um, because of a cultural commodification and cultural capital, that a place that is frequented by gay people all of a sudden has cultural currency and can, can, can quickly become a mixed space before becoming a heterosexual space. And this is happening, I think, more and more. Um, there's a book in French by Colin Giraud, uh, whose English title is Gaytrification, and I think he talks about this too. And um, Sylvie Tissot writes about it too. And I think her book about Boston and gaytrification is, is a pretty good book. But in France, I would say, so in the population that I study, uh, gay uh, people of color and also men who have sex with men who don't identify as gay, what's interesting is that there is a kind of um, new social constellation where um, gay people p gay people of color can meet each other without going through the city center because of the internet on one and organizing their encounters without having to go to a sort of a sexual sanctuary. But also a reinvestment, this is something that I'm thinking about that I haven't really been able to prove yet, but a reinvestment of old cruising spaces where in the past, before outness and the age of transparency and dedicated gay businesses, people used to meet. So parks, in, Fran in France there's a long tradition of parks and um, gay cruising spaces, also in the south of France, not just in um, in Paris, but where you see a lot more gay people of color, because actually for them, not just gay people of color, but also married men, closeted men from all sectors of society, where paradoxically, even though that is a gay cruising space, um, you have more cover and you you cannot be sort of accused of being uh, gay because you were seen in the Marais, the space that everyone knows that is gay, because you could be doing a million other things in that in that space. And that's just a hypothesis of why sort of that area is more invested. But the sum of that is that I think gaytrification has not happened in the, the banlieue because of these homosexuals uh, sorry, gentrification has not happened in the banlieue because of sort of these homosexual forerunners. It's happened for other reasons. For instance, like in Saint-Saint-Denis in the north of Paris, it's movie studios that are moving in there. It's th also the fact that life is too expensive in Paris and families are moving outside to the nearest train station. Um, so I think it, it operates a little differently and um, I don't think... I, I can be corrected, I, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like gay life in Paris and gay socialization has been dispersed to every part of Paris, and that's also facilitated by things like the social media, the the apps like Grindr and so on, where you can really live anywhere and have a fulfilling sort of gay life, at least on the sexual level. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Any other questions? Gentrification question? No. Why aren't you supposed to respond to that? Oh, really? About gentrification. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, I'm, I'm so sorry. I didn't. I didn't get that. <laughs> and he gave you a full answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the gentrification I studied uh, 
is a little bit more conventional actually like in the in my previous department that I was working everybody was seemingly conservative urban transformation of Istanbul a part of it and I was I moved to this neighborhood uh, close to another neighborhood which is a lower class area in one of the richest and most educated parts of Istanbul in in contrast so then with these other people, my colleagues' perspectives, I started to look at the transformation around me with a new eye, and then I recognized that gay people, uh, to a certain extent, play a role. Uh, and at those moments, I read the book, uh, Ghazani, I guess, Gaberhood. Oh, Gaberhood. There, there, goes the gaberhood. there goes the Gaberhood. Yeah. And I uh, tried to think gentrification dynamics, how Istanbul's gays from different classes, not necessarily from different ethnicities, move within the city and kind of like place making and place selection, place, place choices. Uh, but of course, this it's it's not the scale of Paris or Banyu. It's just a small neighborhoods, very few uh, first gay residents, and more or less they are gentrifiers. Actually, even they don't like the idea. And then I also try to understand the same same dynamics of gentrification and beautification and the cleanness of the neighborhood uh, to heterosexual women who are, mm -hmm. because there is no lesbian that I know of living in the neighborhood, I didn't see, I didn't he hear of, but I know a couple of straight women and I talk to them what's going on. How come a gay gentrification, not only a gentrification per se, affects straight women's lives? especially regarding kind of reputation and safety in the neighborhood. So again, it came to the conclusion that uh, sex and gender comes together and it's, it's not possible to disentangle them. I just wondered what is the effect of having this you know, group of people coming, performing the festival and leaving repeatedly year in year out. I mean, what is the gentrification implications of that? Because, mm. And what that international participation actually um, leaves in the, in the context at the end? Mm. Well, I mean, so the theater uh, is located in the Medina downtown, so it's, it's already like an interesting like place, I would say, to, to look at in terms of its dynamics. And, you know, there is already like a community of foreigners or like who are living in the in the Medina, so I would say that is like being gentrified regardless of of the festival, and there are like several like initiatives in terms of you know having vegan uh, like restaurants and and things like that. But mm, in terms of of the festival, uh, I would say. Um, what changed was not just the dynamic. I mean, it, it didn't have an impact in the sense that all these foreigners that are now moving uh, to the Medina, I mean, they all loved it and then they decided, you know, to, to go around and, and, and buy things and, and things like that. But it's also, like, interesting to see uh, how the... Uh, how do you say, like the, the way to the, like, you know, you need to kind of visualize the geogra geography of the, the Medina, but let's say that the theater is at the center and you have the gates just outside and see, like, that, that the way that you would do when public transport drop you, because then you just have to walk, right? You, you can't go by taxi or, I mean, you could, but they really don't want to go inside, so definitely they leave you at the gate and then you just have to walk. It's like, it was very kind of scary for some people to, to walk even that, that, that part. And then, you know, 
you would see like hundreds like women just walking all together, uh, which was kind of, you know, even the reactions of the people started changing, but I wouldn't say that uh, because of the festival then, you know, it kind of got gentrified because it was really a more seen as an international and mixed kind of, uh, but, um, but there is a process of gentrification happening in the Medina regardless, I would say. Now over to you. you I have questions. questions. <laughs> Yes, please, go ahead. Uh, Barbara Solman, Weber College. Um, thank you very much for all your presentations. Uh, very much appreciated. Uh, my uh, first question, or my question is more directed towards Rola, but perhaps all the others can chip in as well. Um, the question is really about your critique uh, on the imposition of LGBTQ identity, Western identities, um, and uh, the need to, to build up a more, let's call it, indigenous forms of identity. Um, uh, however, I keep on bringing how this is actually possible. Uh, on the one hand, we're talking about the globalization of networks and how LGBTQ networks and activism actually constantly communicates and also that uh, in particular in the Middle East that the, the, these platforms are essential, that they are so crucial in for, for you know, the survival of many people but also for, for communicating on a day-to-day on -day basis. On the other hand, uh, uh, we're talking here about building native same-sex relations criminalized by many governments and uh, populists given a marvelous tool to harass or cause problems for anyone seen to be active in this area. Right. Okay, thank you very much. Um. Those were three, okay. <laughs> Type. So uh, first, Barbara, uh, I was not talking necessarily of a native or uh, authentic or indigenous type of identification because I do not think it's possible whatsoever. So this is not a quest of purity, neither political purity, neither identitarian purity. 
um, because that is the gist of the problem. The gist of the problem is defining uh, identity as boxed, like something that is contained and something that could be tangible as well, and having very little recognition outside of that identity. So I was more th thinking of uh, people who do not necessarily abide by that identification, but that do have no normative practices and that do not label them as such. Uh, had queer people existed prior to the language uh, by which we define them. Of course, they did. They do still uh, exist, and probably a lot of them as well like, are not very comfortable uh, framing themselves with, these, uh, with this acronym. And also, the acronym doesn't make sense in the sense that it crams sexual orientation plus like one gender identity and like it's some suddenly something that is homogenous and then uh, in organizing specifically like you would see that LGBT usually stands for G, uh, B is not very visible, L is out there as token and T is completely not there. So um, no, n not a form of indigenous uh, identity but a place of ambiguity that would allow people not to capitalize over this framework and still be able to access resources. So um, the identification is very crucial for a lot of them, and but it is crucial on an individual level. So say, again, when we talk, think of the so-called refugee crisis, how a person, or like how Muhammad had to out himself in order to be able to be granted access to this place, like uh, this is the part of the the part of the struggle that, that we need to work on uh, in the sense that we have to use these terminologies and we have to align our discourse with them in order to be granted access to services and to uh, spaces and uh, to material resources as well. Uh, whereas the fact that we identify with them creates a political value. Anything we say is not innocent, language is not innocent. And the political value that is created if we question ourselves, so how does it display in the uh, imbalances of power and the dynamics of like the geopolitics, etc. So to go back to the so-called refugee crisis, for example, why is uh, a gay person from Iraq that do not necessarily identify as gay, they probably just like, you know, like to have a little sex on uh, the side and here and there, and like, I don't know, maybe they're not familiar with the language, Maybe they identify uh, differently in Arabic and the mother tongue. Maybe they don't identify at all. And like they are trying to escape um, the atrocities that are happening in the country. They're applying to the US for an asylum. And uh, there are very specific horror stories that are requested by UN agencies in order for that asylum to be granted to them. So like they would have to feed into the discourse about uh, how backwards their society is, uh, how um, they are targeted on an individual level on the basis of their sexuality. They can by no means address, for example, that the atrocities that are happening or that, say, ISIS that is like tar targeting them is something that was created in Kambuka by uh, the U.S. invasion that created prisons where religious zealots met with uh, fundamentalists, with people with military experience, and this is something that is much more structural and much more ingrained than their simple individual sexuality that similarly to how they are being persecuted for it like there is a communitarian narrative that is also being pushed back and there is a persecution that is larger than themselves this is something that is not possible because it doesn't cater to the gays what caters to the gays is backward society uh, horrible terrorists this and that and like me as the individual like respectable person with a sexuality that is not Mahzabi, not polite, <laughs> impolite sexuality, I, I would flee to a place with a better promise with, like that would grant me these fundamental rights. Um, so how 
do we go about it? Like, I think we need to let go of the identitarian framework, uh, specifically because we do not live, to borrow from Audrey Lord, we do not live like single issue lives, so we cannot like have single issue struggles. We need to think of like how my queerness plays out in a context that is national, how does it play out in the diaspora, how does it play out in relation to like straight people as well, and like how we can lift together each other's um, yeah, um, conflicts and struggles and um, so like the way people have been organizing like in the queer feminist community that I belong to in Lebanon is to capitalize on this like reproductive justice because um, I was saying earlier like I was having this conversation in a different crowd that is not specialized and when I was talking about reproductive justice they were saying why are you like from the queer movement talking about reproductive justice you guys do, do not reproduce because you're like lesbians gays and like trans people and, and that's like the core of the issue like yes the government molds us or like the state creates our bodies as bodies that do not reproduce uh, the family unit, they do not reproduce uh, the state, they do not like feed into the reproduction, both metaphorical and like physical, uh, of all of these uh, binaries. And this is the core of the issue, why like to be trans one has to let go of um, reproduction, basically they have to go through a forced sterilization type of thing in order to acquire the proper documentation in Lebanon. Uh, why is it that like uh, gay people cannot like for example have children because the question of adoption would emerge uh, question of access would emerge why poor people cannot like have sex or like it's super frowned upon because sex is not a luxury when we talk about sexuality I mean sex is a form of entertainment and it's, and it's one form of entertainment that is free and sometimes we pay for it and that's okay as well uh, but like all of these things they are not luxuries and like they pertain to our sex lives and it used to be not respectable to speak of this but this is why, like, this is something that got sidelined, and maybe if we bring back the reproductive justice into it, if we say this is something that does not concern us, if we interlink our struggle to the struggles of people that have been branded as others, that have been branded as their struggle does not intersect with ours, because we're gay and they're not, or because we're citizens and they're not, or because of whatever, like, this is when we can imagine a feminist futurity and a queer futurity that is different from this reliance uh, on the LGBT discourse. To go back to the second question, uh, I, uh, what I can provide you with, I do not have a concrete answer for, for, for this, but I do have two uh, recommendations. Uh, Maya Mikdash, she worked, and like their Lebanese uh, <laughs> recommendations, since this is where I work uh, in. Um, Maya Mikdash, she worked on something called sectarianism. So like because Lebanon is sectarian, but like she worked on sex and how that plays out in queer relationships. So what type of the potentiality of queer recognition that does not have to pertain to the rights framework and like how uh, our organizing uh, functions uh, aside the state or like in parallel to the state and to like UN agencies and the rights framework. Uh, another person that worked on this is uh, Dima Qaid Bayi, also from Lebanon. She worked on something uh, she called ambiguous uh, queer visibilities and like she uh, she talked about a framework where, um, yeah, visibility would not like require outing that type of identity because the type of identity might not exist, but also because like that would make our lives easier and whatever can make our lives easier, like would really work. So yeah. This is a better mic. So um, I wanted to answer the question um, from the Times. Um, I think that 
Uh, part of the problem is that people are doing the work. Uh, people are doing the resistance. People are putting pressure where pressure can be put. Um, but, you know, the attitude of sort of futility or Im impossibility um, is not helpful. And their work needs to be recognized. And I think that um, rather than sort of, um, you know, having a one-size-fits-all sort of stonewall liberation narrative uh, for the region, we have to do some listening and see what people on the ground are actually looking for and wanting. And I, I think any conversation about this issue um, has to uh, first um, acknowledge certain things. Uh, we talked earlier about how all the uh, most of the laws repressing unnatural sex, same-sex contact, uh, same-sex contact, or sex work, are inherited from um, the colonial codes, uh, colonial uh, legal codes. Um, and also, um, I think you know, the jury is still out on what uh, people in the Middle East actually think. Uh, there has not been a full-throated endorsement of those homophobic or um, sex work phobic uh, laws. This was never put to a vote. These were inherited. Um, and, you know, uh, what with corruption, what with the difficulty of um, and disappointments from, you know, the Arab Spring or whatever you want to call it, um, I don't think these are laws that are especially representative because they haven't been endorsed by the population. So, uh, I don't think it's epistemologically possible to actually know what people think about this issue. Um, just from a logical stand standpoint. Can I, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I just wanted to join, I mean, Mohammed's point in terms of kind of listening uh, to what, you know, the situation is and rather, you know, knowing the reality and not imposing certain, you know, programs or certain approaches, whether it might be, you know, LGBT framework or human rights framework. Uh, now, when it comes to how effective uh, these movements are in a context of, of criminalization, I think that we shouldn't, like, limit ourselves to the idea necessarily of criminalization. Also, I mean, when we look at who is being criminalized, uh, like if you look at how many people, for example, went to jail I don't know, last year, there are no official statistics, of course, so what I'm telling you is just based on, uh, like, a civil society work, but I would say it's between 60 and 70 young men, and are young men uh, who come from marginalized regions most of the time, so it's really also an issue of uh, class and, and justice and access to justice. Um, now, many of these organizations have been working also without funding, has been, like, very like grassroots movements who are now maybe just starting to get into the NGO world and, and getting to be structured, but they've been working there for, you know, for many years without falling within this framework of, of rights and so on. So I think it is very possible to do activism even in this context of criminalization by knowing how to, you know, navigate within it. Um, yes, right. Yes, please. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy to have Sylvia and Julia on the panel. I'm Tunisian myself, and Sylvia was my flatmate. Oh, well, that was <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, My question—it's not a question. It's like um, it's incitement to reflect on uh, how 
LGBTQA um, activism became visible in Tunisia um, after the revolution and how the Arab Spring when it disturbed uh, the institutions and, and the, and the um, traditions and uh, the homonormativity of the state and, and, and its relationship and, and the relationship um, no, it's like how um, uh, Tunisia before 2011 was a very um, uh, state feminist country that is proud of whatever and then this openness uh, allowed a lot of people from different backgrounds and different um, um, orientations to come together and to work together and um, uh, and we ended up having this report of the um, uh, Freedom Commission's uh, that one of the aims was to decriminalize um, sodomy and uh, uh, what do you think that this was possible because of the revolution or do you think it was mm. going to be possible even without the revolution mm. it's like with um, uh, uh, you tell uh, me I don't know <laughs> like we, 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 we think together uh, like with social media with uh, globalization and I, I, I don't have an answer. Mm. But I no. think the temporality is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, because we assume something changes, we assume that change will lead to a positive change further down the line, but things can not go that way. Mm. But let's just another question. Yeah. Yes. Hi. Um, I have a question with regards to the law. Um, I'm sorry, they're very, very vague, so I'm really sorry. Um, but okay. uh, um, so especially for uh, Rola and for Sylvia, who's based on the Middle East, um, when it comes to the law and punishment, like you just said, um, if that can't change, or how can we change that when you said that, no, like the um, the human rights is not, it, it doesn't really, it's not really applicable, even the conventions, it just it's not followed, all of these things, but at the same time. Um, it's still it, it, the law is there and it's still not changing. Yeah. And if the law isn't, if uh, persecution isn't uh, the way to go about it and the way to push for um, queer nationals to take control, and in that sense, uh, then it's through activism. I'm assuming the only other option is activism. But as much as the Arab Spring did good things for like place like Tunis, which is great, but also. Um, there is a lot of persecution on activism in general when it comes to other places like Egypt. Uh, you can, uh, being, uh, act, being active in political dissent in any sort of way is not accepted, let alone for LGBT activism, that would that'd be a whole different deal. Uh, and that also leads to, leads to further punishment and punishment. And, yeah. um, and also, finally, uh, gender equality and LGBT activism, if uh, laws when it comes to gender equality are being promoted and that's changing in Tunisia, would that uh, lead to a change with LGBT laws, do you think? Or it's not really related? Yep. Thank you. Um, another question? The Thanks third sir. question? Let me back as well. I'm conscious we kind of can't Go ahead. Who wants to answer? Okay, I can start and then I'll leave it to you. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, regarding whether these movements were have happened uh, without the revolution, uh, I think, I mean, the movements were kind of already there before the revolution, but not officially, you know, they were not officially registered. Uh, so there was, of course, uh, something, you know, happening uh, on the ground already. Then 
definitely the revolution had an impact, clearly, simply by the fact, you know, that now you can register civil society organizations working on, on pretty much anything, and it's, you know, it's very, it's very easy to, to register an, an organization in Tunisia, which is not the case, for example, in Egypt, or, you know, so there is a reality that is specific to the Tunisian context, which I think it's really important to, to acknowledge. You want to say something? No. Yeah, it's also about the visibility of abuses done to uh, gay men especially. Mm -hmm. We didn't hear about this before the revolution, but now it became yeah. news, you know? And like, people ca campaign for it. And, and, um, no, no, I agree with you. It, w it wasn't visible, but I'm just saying it doesn't mean that the movements weren't there, but of course the revolution allowed for the issues to be visible and for the movements to be able to organize themselves in a more like legal way and, and, and have like maybe a stronger impact, so definitely. And that's why I don't think it is possible to speak maybe about LGBT rights in other countries in the region that didn't go through the same process that Tunisia did, because I think it's very problematic to put the region as a monolithic block where all the experiences are the same, which they're not. I mean, there is a shared history of certain things, but not everything. So um, now when it comes to uh, the, the issue of the, of the legal framework, I mean, I, I work in a human rights field and I kind of believe in this uh, uh, legal framework, which I still think that needs to be problematized and the way it is used and how it's used and all of that. But eventually I think it is important to have laws that, you know, uh, protect our rights and and to know like how to use them because uh, you know even if we can we, we can debate uh, like a lot on how the UN works and why the, the, the power dynamics are, are wrong and why certain states are dominating but eventually I mean the UN is there today and, and tomorrow and I guess it's gonna stay there for a while so you still need to kind of new know how to use it. That's at least my, my position. Then you can question it and challenge it and try to change it and all of that. Um, now, when it comes to, for example, the, the example of Tunisia, the, um, there was the, the universal periodic review that happened like a year and a half ago. And during this review, it was the first time that uh, approximately like 20 states from different parts of the world, so not just the West, they raised this issue of having, you know, that Tunisia should abolish this law that criminalizes homosexuality. And it was, you know, the first time that they were put in front of this in a kind of international arena. They ignored it, like, at the, on, in this context, but still, I think that because the debate has started both at the national and international level, it will bring to eventually uh, abolish this law. I'm very positive on, and I try to stay positive on these things. So I think it's going to happen. <laughs> I can't tell you when exactly. Uh, but now when it comes to, to gender equality, there has been like a lot of reform from, from the legal point of view, just I would say in the past year or two. I mean, Tunisia already had pretty good laws in terms of gender equality, and some sp spoke about this. Uh, before about you know the state feminism but you know for example uh, three or four months ago they passed like a law uh, against gender-based violence which I think has a pretty good understanding of what gender-based violence is and it's not just sexual harassment but different types of, of violence and there has been there is right now uh, a new proposal to change the inheritance law to provide full equality that is being studied by the parliament. So I think there is a movement in terms of reform, reforming laws that I still think it's important, although we may want to question it, but yeah.
I'll try. Uh, okay, so like revolution or no revolution, had it happened? Well, like uh, historically, it was always easier to push through like certain changes, like when it was like a rupture uh, happening or like a momentum that was revolutionary that was provided such a opening. So, uh, granted, it, it it has helped, I imagine. But like, without it, did would we have had that type of progression? Uh, probably, but like if we did, it would have been us decolonizing, right? Like not progressing necessarily or liberalizing. It would ha have been Tunisia removing a law that it has inherited from France, similar to what has happened recently in India, and everybody has like celebrated as like progress, where in fact, if we think temporally, it's like it went back to a state that was, uh, that predated like the existence of that law. So what makes me uncomfortable with like discussing the globalization of uh, uh, these uh, plights is the attempt to hijack uh, that kind of change um, when and even like with the revolution itself, when it doesn't come to LGBTQI people, when people were saying like, oh, yay, we gave them like Twitter and like, hence, there, there you go, like the revolution happened or we gave them terminology for LGBT and now like they're speaking about it. Like those are mov movements that have been there, like perhaps operating in the shadows using a different lexicon. Um, so like we need to fight like the appropriation of that struggle. Um, and yeah. So like that, towards that question. And uh, for, for the legal framework, um, I have like two, uh, <laughs> two things to say about the legal framework. So uh, criminalization, that was the question. Um, for example, in Lebanon, up to 2011, like a different law was in place. It was the honor uh, crime. So like when somebody would kill like their spouse, it would be considered an honor crime. And like they would tell them, oh, like we're sorry, okay, that happened to you. You're like free to go. That wasn't persecuted as like... Uh, as a crime or like a criminal offense, it was just like let go and people lobbied and like that law was changed, it was, it was removed, it was no longer a law, but still like within the legal system there is something called an honor, um, not, not an honor, a passion crime, right? So like what's passion crime, honor crime, like different language, same practice. So loopholes would exist and it's wonderful that we have people like that are working on mending those loopholes. But the imputability of change and uh, like justice that is granted by a certain authority and an authority that is not representative of like people who live within that territory or like people who have like their lives and like their livelihoods, their sexuality like depending on that to that certain legal framework um, is, is very offensive in the sense that um, like it's similar to that like horrible book what is it called like the psychiatry thing where they list things that are mental illnesses yeah, like every now and then they're like, woo, like transgenderism is not an illness. And you're like, Sah and you're like, okay, it's about time to wake up. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. So like, and, and this is used like to rally for like, okay, so like now let's decriminalize transness. But like, how is it relying to some bunch of dudes meeting and deciding if this is a mental illness or deciding if this is something lawful or unlawful? And then like the government changes and policymakers change and they would change that book. And like, we need something that is more sustainable and that is community led. So. Uh, that's my first issue with criminalization and stuff. I'm not saying let's not work on it, let's work on it, but let's work on sustainable structures that exist outside of the state and in parallel to the state. And let's que question the injustice system that we have, the entitlement of the state to deem certain bodies as disposable and like to decide for them whether they should have sex or not and with whom and how and etc. And the second thing that I have 
against like the legal framework is say like Tunisia is super progressive right then uh, sex work there is legal but it's not sex work that is legal it's working as a sex worker for the government sex workers have on their identity cards that they're um, civil yeah, employees of the Ministry of Interior. So they're government workers. Uh, yeah, so if you ever meet a Tunisian, <laughs> now you know what that means. Uh, so freelancing is still illegal. So virtually, again, our bodies are commodified and like there is a loophole in this law where the government wants monopoly over your sexuality, not only with like, are you having sex or not and with whom and how, but also like they need to benefit off of that transaction. So like the only instance, like a friend of mine told me this, like when we live in a capitalist system, if we think of the surplus value, a freelance sex worker would have the surplus value to her own, but no, the government has to uh, dig into that and like take that form of like uh, resistance. So like when we legalize things like what's the authority that grants that legality and like do we need to follow that or can we imagine different frameworks? So like active imagination. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think one thing to say, I think this decriminalization issue is so important in the international policy debates around HIV AIDS, around sexuality rights, etc. But the problem is, as much as you decriminalize, unless you change the attitudes who are supposed to use those laws to allow people to function and live, that decriminalization doesn't do anything. There are all sorts, I mean, there are all sorts of countries where sexualities, the marginal sexualities are not criminalized, but people are still penalized. There are all sorts of other laws governments use, because mm. we are looking at the sort of quick fix, okay, let's decriminalize, everything's going to be resolved. Well, it doesn't work that way, quite. And we don't mm. know what is the support mechanism for those to be functional in countries where we don't know much about the sexual cultures anyway. So, Can I give a straight example? <laughs> okay, a straight example from Italy. Like, uh, abortion is legal, but women do not get abortions anyway because there is something called conscientious objection, and like, there you go. Like, all of the OBGYNs are like, no, Vatican's. So, legalize, not legalize, maybe provide the service, provide the freaking service. Yeah. Doesn't have to be legal, has to be safe. Last few questions, maybe, if there are burning questions about the issues we are talking about. No? Yes, please, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so on, on the issue of transnational activists and its linkage to funding, but also its linkage to local anger about this being Western ideas being imposed by international donors. So is there a way to separate funding for local activism without with, I mean, how, how is it that funding can be achieved through international sources without being linked to being Western ideas imposed on local communities, although the local communities are already existing? Um, another thing is, is this kind of an argument between the pragmatism um, that we just need to focus on the real-life issues and making life easier for, for, any, um, for any, any minority in this sense? as opposed to that this takes away the bigger meaning of human rights and their, their, their right to, be, to, to come out and to be respected like any majority. So when, when the work of local activists focus more on the day-to-day -day struggles, it is sometimes perceived as emptying the, the movement from the bigger meaning. But at the same time, on the local level, only those who don't have um, 
intersectionality can actually afford to fight for human rights just for the purpose of human rights. And this applies to empowerment in terms of female or just any other right that comes with sexuality. So the balance in this and in that. That's a big comment. Mm -hmm. so it is a big one. If you want to comment on it, please go ahead. Maybe last words. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what in what you say, I'll just comment. I can show that um, the um, the interesting way you put it in, put put the, the argument is, well, sometimes it's considered to be emptying after the big movement. But what is this big movement? For whom it is big? For I mean, what does it do to the local in a way? Because in a way, for everyone in different contexts, they want to live lives they want to live in the way they want to live. And I think there's that sort of slight disconnect between these big movements, everyone is claiming big things, but then do we know? I mean, great, I, my work is on HIV AIDS, so I look at civil society movement on HIV AIDS. The great example, of course, is the US discourse on HIV AIDS, how successful civil society has been. Well, is it? I mean, if you look at the African-American population in the U.S., young men and their infection levels, it's evident that the American movement was very middle-class white and, and terribly gentrified. They just had race patterns entirely played out that still today, after 20, 30 years, African-American men are not part of that big movement. But of course, big movement was also <coughs> speaking on their behalf without really knowing who these people were. So. Uh, these are the slight dangers of uh, having big sort of talks about these things. Yeah, okay. I'll comment. Can I? <laughs> okay. Last so word. yeah, last word. Uh, so some funders are better than others. Like m you can go about with like some funders just like do not ask for those certain milestones. Like they do not ask for an extensive reporting process. Um, so you can find those like how we do it in Kohal, uh, like the journal where I work. Um, we, for example, like limit the list of people that we can like take money from. So we don't take any money from any department of state, from any ministry of foreign affairs, from uh, we support BDS. So we do not take money from anyone who gives money there. Um, from anyone who like withheld money from activists because they support BDS. So roughly, like we can only work with like five donors, <laughs> which means that like we're two employees, underfunded, overworked. But like, check out our journal; it's pretty cool. And then uh, <laughs> other things that like we can organize within. There are um, things that can be self-sustainable. So we can look into cooperatives. Uh, there are a lot of examples in the Global South. There is one example in, in, in Lebanon, a second one in the making for agriculture. So like ways that we can share skills, support each other, like uh, create money from like our own networks and not rely on them whatsoever. And then like your greater question is about reform versus revolution. And that's Rosa Luxemburg and like perhaps it could shed light on that. Mohamed, you were going to say something. That. No, I just was going to echo what you said, actually, because, um, oh, sorry. I mean, this is not news to a lot of people, but I think the U.S. case is very is very instructive example of 
what happens when sort of the goals of the movement are defined from sort of Washington DC or from um, the human rights campaign and not sensitive to sort of realities on the ground. For instance, the AIDS crisis not being over in all communities. And, uh, you know, the AIDS crisis was a very federating force. It brought a lot of people together. Gay marriage disentangled these solidarities in some ways because it was an objective, a material objective rather than a social objective. That's arguable, right? And no one wants gay marriage to be taken away. But it led to a lot of um, breakup. Of, um, of, of, of solidarities and also a lot of stigmatizations of, for instance, minority communities that, for instance, in the fallout after Proposition 8. Uh, this is California political history, but there was a, during Barack Obama's election, there was a proposition that was going to, def I think it was going to define marriage as between a man and a woman. Um, and because there was a big black turnout uh, for that uh, election, um, even though numerically those voters constituted less of, of the vote than sort of white voters who um, sort of the margin of, of basically numerically, the margins didn't compute, yet the black voters who came out um, in, in, in very high numbers were blamed for the, the um, uh, uh, validation of that proposition uh, confirming marriage between a black uh, um, a man and a woman and um, this was a very painful moment um, for I think the the gay community as a whole and we're still sort of um, piecing the um, coalition together but uh, there was a lot of finger pointing and we supported your president why didn't you support us which is not productive at all. And I think that all happened because the policy goals and the movement was defined from above rather than from below. This is also instructive. I'm talking because we are, this is a, sort of supposed to be a discussion about Middle East and North Africa, but talking about the U.S.'s interest in 23 because the patterns of global activism around sexualities are exported as well. These factionalisms, the way in which differentiations are created about groups when they are acting they are acting can be observed in the same patterns that you see in, in either in the UK or in the US, just being played out in, in different countries, suddenly which groups in, which groups out. In some ways they use the models which are assumed to have worked elsewhere. A lot of international funders do it, a lot of international organizations as big sort of uh, movements try to replicate these things. So it's instructive to look at where the movement is emerging from, in a way. Any other questions, deeply sort of burning questions now? Yes, please. Uh, okay, so Last question. Thank you all very much, first of all. I wanted to ask about um, this idea of hierarchy um, when you speak of LGBTIQ and if you want to use that framework. So I want to ask, both because you were speaking, Mohan, you were speaking about um, in Paris, that there's this this kind of space to move around rather freely, um, but then there's also this interesting dichotomy of, of not letting, say, femme presenting women in, in, into gay clubs because they're presumed mm -hmm. heterosexual, right? Um, so I kind of wanted to to see, ask you about the, um, the hierarchization and also the, the intersections um, 
within the city? Because you talked a little bit about that, but I would like to know also how that relates, relates to kind of queer, um, queer people and, and femme people, um, and not only kind of within the bon and also in, in the city center of Paris. And then I also wanted to ask, sorry, I have two questions. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask, um, when you work with, so we talked briefly about the issue of funding, um, how can you kind of, because a lot of, a lot of funding that comes in, right, um, some things that, that pay off very easily are the, the issues where you work with um, men who have sex with men or the gay community. Um, um, and that's a lot of times where the focus is. And I also wanted to know that about the, the Turkish uh, setting. Um, so how do you work with, within the community with, with all these hierarchies that kind of exist? Very Thank you for your question. Um, I, I didn't think about it in terms of hierarchies, but I see what you're saying when you're pointing out how there are kind of mutually ex exclusive communities in a way. And I think um, in France, there's often been an official suspicion of uh, communitarianism. Like up until actually very recently, the gay community itself was accused of a certain communitarianism where you privilege one um, facet of, of belonging over and above national belonging. And with the mariage pour tous, um, this kind of changed. Um, but uh, in regards to sort of the segregation of spaces, like I can talk about nightlife spaces, I think for a very long time in recent memory, um, you know, lesbian spaces and gay spaces were really uh, segregated. They didn't really mix. Um, there's a novelist, uh, Nina Bouraoui, who wrote a book about how uh, it's a friendship between a gay man and a, a lesbian and how they can't hang out in the same spaces. Um, and how they envy each other, they want to, they're curious about each other's spaces, right? And I think, um, you know, with um, the changing of generations, and especially this generation, the millennial and the one after it, I think it's Z, uh, they are interested in hanging out together, I think. And you see more the proliferation of nightlife spaces where um, there is just a sort of M.O., a modus, modus operandi of how one should act in those spaces and a kind of you're implicitly signing that you um, will honor inclusivity when you enter these spaces. And maybe very much as an American kind of cultural import in a way of conceiving of nightlife space. But I, the, you know, I'm, I'm older now and I don't get invited to the best parties, but the parties I want to go to <laughs> adhere to this kind of format. I just wanted to say quickly something about the funding issue. I completely agree with Rula with, you know, the strategy that she outlined in terms of making the movements more sustainable and also selecting the funding. But I also think it's a responsibility of the donors themselves to kind of, you know, inform themselves and listen to what, you know, people need. And I think often they come up with uh, with agendas and, and what they, you know, what they need to achieve and the fact that you need to put the logos there or, you know, acknowledge these and that. And I think it's it's really important that people who will then go and, and work into this kind of agency are aware of what the context is. And if they don't, then just go and, and listen and, and, and meet with people. And it's also up to the movements to 
you know target the donors and and sit with them and and you know and explain what they what their issues are and i think that's that's an important point it's not just the responsibility of the movements but also of the donors that brings us to the end of this discussion thanks for staying yeah, thank with you. us <laughs> thank you. thanks for the time